Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world we live in, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, well, she awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, I will say your name. <laughs> Tell us all about it, please. How can you get my name wrong? Actually, our chat room is uh, full of people who are w willing to be uncertain. I really like that. Uh, but that just means that, you know, you're open to questioning once again what it is that you think you know. And when you're open to questioning, then you're open to learning something new. So um, our chat room is always full of great conversation, contribution, information, you know, everyone brings their own experiences to it. So I always learn a bunch from them. And then if there's something I'm unsure about, I can ask them about it right away and get their feedback real time. So that makes it fun. So if you are able, you know, if you can be in front of your computer in a nice, safe way without getting in trouble with your boss, then do come join us at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. If you're unable to join us live, you know, you can always come back afterwards and check out the chat room log. Uh, we often do post um, additional information in there, you know, any special URLs or contact information, uh, we'll put it in there. So it is worth going back to check that later on too. All right. Thank you. In this week's spotlight, I wish to discuss empathy. Empathy is defined as the ability to understand and share the feelings of another. Empathy differs from compassion. That is important. We'll be discussing that more in a later show with someone who believes empathy can be just dangerous. But empathy differs from compassion in that empathy refers to the ability to relate to another person's pain vicariously as if one has experienced that pain themselves. Whereas compassion is the ability to understand and share the emotions and experiences of another. If you cry at sad scenes in films, tweet and post emotional links and jump to help the less fortunate, you could be genetically predisposed to sensory processing sensitivity. SPS. I think my wife is inclined in that direction. At least that's what researchers say. California researchers have found that up to 20% of people are affected, having a highly sensitive brain that responds to emotional images. The researchers used fMRI scans to monitor the level of empathy and say the emotional levels are particularly high if pictures of partners smiling are shown to them. To some extent, we are all empathetic. In that nature and evolution have equipped us with mirror neurons. A mirror neuron is a neuron that fires both when an animal acts and when the animal observes the same action performed by another. Thus, the neuron mirrors the behavior of the other as though the observer were itself acting. There are both advantages and disadvantages to empathy. Too much empathy may lead to codependence. This happens when a partner in a relationship is empathetic to the point that they are so focused on their partner's needs and interests that they forego their own. That said, empathy is a desirable characteristic when it comes to understanding others and building a better society. So what is a healthy balance between too much empathy and just the right amount? I live in a community where it's almost impossible to go from point A to point B without encountering someone on the street who's panhandling. When do you help or do you? I remember a pregnant woman approaching myself and my wife in a parking lot with a sad story of how her money had been stolen and all she wanted was a little gas money to get back home to Idaho. I was just about to give her money when a gentleman stepped in with these words, don't give her anything. She gave me that same gas story last week. Just this week, I was walking into one of my favorite restaurants with my lovely bride. 
a fellow approached me asking for money. He insisted that he was broke and needed to feed his four-year-old daughter. Forgive me, but his appearance suggested he was far from broke, so I simply shook my head no and walked on. Seated by the restaurant window a few moments later, I watched as he stopped a woman headed into a retail store next door. The woman did give him money, and he immediately entered the same restaurant I was seated in, went to the bar, and ordered a drink. Now, in contrast, I have given many people money, thinking they truly were in need. But again, where is the balance? Research clearly suggests everyone is better served if instead of giving the panhandler money, we donate to a relief center or home for the homeless, etc., Still knowing this and ignoring that person right in front of you who appears to need help can be a haunting task. I would like to hope that we all can empathize, at least develop the compassion with others so that we can go to their aid in times of genuine need. But once again, how we act on our needs, empathic needs, may take some careful pre-thinking as we tender our concern with the appropriate mixture of balance. What are your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, there's a ton of food for thought in what you were talking about there, so I can't go through all the things that got triggered in my mind as you were going through that. But this issue of when to help people in need um, does become an important one, you know, because, as you said, the all the research out there says that, you know, if you donate to an organization, it'll have a much greater effect than if you donate to the individual. But that takes a certain amount of coldness to it. I suppose I've been thinking about this ever since we had Peter Singer on the on the show, because he always talks about the maximum good that you can do. Um, there is value to helping the person right in front of you. And we all get tweaked by different things. So, you know, whenever wear out um, if you see a panhandler who happens to be female with a child or who's pregnant you're a whole lot more likely to stop and give them something even when we have seen um, that pregnant panhandler you know become a little bit disheveled and the pillow fall out from under her yes. shirt, which we have actually seen right. so and but you don't want to ignore someone in need who's right in front of you um it's 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 complicated that's all i wouldn't say that i have an answer to that i think it serves us to help other people because when we help other people then we get more of that oxytocin ourselves you know all those good hormones they they feel good um but it's not always the best thing to do and i think people can get carried away trying to be good and then, you know, it kind of defeats the object because you're not helping people I, who need it. And I think you hit, you know, the nail on the head, if you will. Um, our guest today can discuss with us uh, more precisely about empathy. But in a few weeks, we have a guest coming on the show who really would like to see us develop compassion, not empathy. Because the problem with empathy is you feel for these people. And it is that feeling that stops you from maybe thinking about where is the best place I could contribute my money. It is that that need to help where compassion perhaps, you know, is mitigated a little more by an intellectual faculty and a little less by the heartstrings pulling on us. But we'll take that up with our guest today, see what he has to say. Okay, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last live show featured E.A. Barker, and we discussed his relationship ideas and book, Miss Creand. Bob wrote, I liked your guest's humor, but I questioned some of his comments. How on earth can you really thoroughly research such a broad matter as men and women and their differences in only one year? Beth commented, oh my God, that got a reaction out of me. Women are like dogs, don't reward bad behavior. Extina replied, there, was a def there were definite moments when I was reading when I went, oh my God, but I am glad I read it. Lindsay wrote, good interview, I think, especially as it's quite a controversial topic from a woman's point of view. It was interesting to understand what's behind the book and some of the comments. Moving on, Arturo wrote, I have used your InterTalk program since long time ago, and they are fantastic. 
Jasmine wrote, thank you very much for your InterTalk products. They have changed everything and continue to improve my life. Jim wrote, Dr. Taylor, I have a fine collection of InterTalk programs from your company, and they have facilitated attitude, skill, and knowledge changes that have vastly improved the lives of my entire family. Thank you for what you do. Well, thank you, all of you. We appreciate your letters. That's all the time we're going to take for them today, but I do invite you to opine by emailing me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook. We sincerely appreciate your comments and feedback. Now to this week's show, Mirror Touch with Dr. Joel Salinas. I want you to stop and think about what it might be like if you experienced Mirror Touch Synesthesia a condition which causes individuals to experience the same cessation, such as touch, that another person feels. Now, how would this impact you if you were a medical professional? Today's guest experiences just this. His book copy puts it this way. Challenging our understanding of what it means to be human, Joel Salinas, a Harvard-trained researcher and neurologist at Massachusetts General, shares his experiences with mirror touch synesthesia, a rare and only recently identified neurological trait that causes him to feel the emotion and physical experiences of other people. Performing a spinal tap, he feels the needle slowly enter his lower back. If a disoriented patient flies into a confused rage, Salinas slips into a similarly agitated physical state. And when a patient dies, he experiences an involuntary ruin. His body starts to feel vacant and lifeless, like a limp balloon, close quote. So let me tell you a little about our guest before we get him in here. Dr. Joel Salinas has synesthesia, a complex neurological trait that causes him to constantly perceive each of his senses as a mix with one or more of his other senses, from hearing colors and tasting sounds to experiencing people as numbers. After studying the intersection of biology and sociology at Cornell University, he completed his medical degree at the University of Miami Miller School of Medicine, followed by neurology residency at Massachusetts General Hospital and the Brigham Women's Hospital. He subsequently completed a combined research and clinical fellowship in behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Salinas lives in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and is an instructor of neurology at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. He specializes in brain health, including neuropsychiatry and cognitive behavioral neurology, and conducts research in social and behavioral epidemiology to understand the complex neurobiological interplay between social relationships and brain health. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dr. Joel Salinas. Thank you for inviting me. It's indeed my pleasure. I loved your book. It, it is, in fact, I'm going to have you share many of the stories that you have in there, but it is really a fascinating read. But, but doctor, Thank we you. like to get to three things on our show. Who yeah. is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, let's begin by learning more about you. When did you first discover that you were experiencing mirror touch synesthesia? Well, you know, I always had a sense that I was different or odd compared to other people, but I always just kind of chalked it up to being a really weird kid. Um, you know, thinking back to my childhood, I was always very picky about kind of uh, what colors I had to color my letters. For example, A had to be red, B had to be light orange, the number one had to be light yellow. And in watching TV, I was always kind of immersed in this very rich sensory world, you know, like watching The Roadrunner. If The Roadrunner sticks out his tongue, I feel like my tongue is sticking out. If I see Wiley Coyote get hit by a truck, I feel like I'm hit by a truck. And it was only really until my first year of medical school that I learned that synesthesia was a thing, let alone that my sensory world was so different compared to others. Uh, okay. I have to ask you this, then. I mean... Is you see it today? Uh, I, I don't want to skip over, you know, your early life. I want to go to what it was like in school and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But you see it today. Uh, you experience it with your patients. Some would say it's a curse. Others would say it's a blessing. How do you balance that? Well, that's an excellent question, and that. It, it, 
for me, it's, um, you know, sometimes the, the term condition is used to describe it, but really the way that I see it, it's just kind of like a glitch in the wiring and programming of my brain. It's kind of this involuntary kind of quirk or trait, if you will. And um, it has uh, the potential for really positive experiences and also some distressing experiences. So, for example, if I were to watch someone hug, for example, I get to feel that sensation as if I were being embraced as well, and that can be a very beautiful experience. While on the other hand, seeing a very unpleasant experience like someone being punched in the face or someone in extreme pain, um, it can be really distressing. Um, but for, for me, I think part of it was um, in my upbringing, I was always kind of taught to uh, seek kind of what knowledge there is in, in areas of discomfort. You know, outside of the comfort zone is where you'll learn. Uh, and so uh, any any experiences that were uncomfortable for me or, or kind of uh, that I was fearful of, I was kind of drawn um, drawn to those experiences. Um, and, you know, growing, growing up, uh, kind of having all these different kind of mixed sensory experiences, uh, I had to really learn how to kind of kind of be calm, kind of be in the moment. I, I kind of describe it as almost like a compulsory mindfulness. It's kind of developing a lot of practice around kind of uh, my own regulation of my of my thoughts and kind of my, my perceptions so that way I'm better equipped to handle it later on. So as an example, um, you know, when, I, um, when I'm seeing a new condition, for example, a new patient for the first time, um, those experiences can be much more vivid than than kind of the usual. So, uh, in neurology, as I was beginning to see patients, uh, I was learning to uh, see patients with tick and Tourette's disorders. And one of my patients um, had uh, what uh, developed to be a self-mutilating ticks in the setting of a lot of stress. And so he chews on the inside of his mouth, and he uses his knuckle to push up against the corner of his mouth and grind his teeth to the point that he split his mouth apart, kind of like shredded beef. And as I'm watching him kind of have this tick pushing on his face, grinding on his teeth with all his force, I feel kind of mirrored on my body as if there's this painful buzzing shooting through my cheek and into my teeth, like there's a stun gun being triggered on my face each time he has one of these ticks. But the more I expose myself to these kind of uncomfortable situations, um, the less vivid and the less kind of extreme the distress is, the more I'm able to kind of regulate it and not kind of let myself be overwhelmed. And as a result, um, you know, I feel like I've been able to, to harness this experience uh, a bit uh, and use it professionally. You know, I, I get the chance to share in some of that pain and discomfort and suffering of my patients, and at the same time, the patient gets to be a little less alone. And if you've ever been sick or known someone that's been sick, you know that feeling a little less alone makes a big difference when you're, when you're being treated by a physician. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, you just triggered off a whole host of questions. So, but uh, but, but <laughs> yeah, you know, back your, up. your intro was so good. I mean, it, it, there's so much to unpack. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's let's go to that. That's, you heard the intro. You heard the spotlight on empathy. You, you know, I spent years as a criminalist, and so we did some you know behavioral analysis, obviously, uh, um, in, in that practice. Uh, um, but that's another subject. But uh, you know, when I approach someone or someone approaches me, I'm assessing them differently, I'm sure, than you're assessing them, you know, the so-called panhandler. When when you're approached by someone like that, do you are you a human lie detector? I mean, can you tell if they're, you know, this is a hoax and they're going to run into the bar and buy a drink? Or <laughs> How do you deal with that? Well, I think one one thing that's important to note is that you know the meritus anesthesia it's it's really just kind of like a a glitch in in my brain. So there's nothing particularly um, you know supernatural about it. In the, you know it's not like being a medical intuitive or a psychic, and it's not going to be 100 percent accurate by any stretch. It's just like having another another sense almost. And I think I, I saw that you'll be uh, interviewing Lisa Feldman Barrett soon. And I think that's phenomenal because she has some really fascinating things to say about these topics related to just how, and how emotions are made, which is her, her yes. book. Yes. Um, but it, it kind of relates to that. You know, the, if, for example, if I'm approached by uh, a panhandler, for example, um, you know, I'm, I'm not necessarily scoping out to see whether they're lying to me or not because, you know, there could be physical 
uh, cues that are reflected in my body that may, in the right context, suggest that they they are lying to me, but I might be wrong about that. Um, you know, there's it's not a 100% kind of accurate, and so I always take the opportunity to kind of notice this experience that I'm having, uh, recognize it for what I think it is, and then I explore more. If, I mean, if, you know, if I have time. Um, to ask questions. I mean, just just responding in some in some way can be really helpful, and that sometimes, you know, as a, as a physician can mean, you know, prescribing a medication, but a lot of the times it just means being really present with the person that I'm with and trying to learn more about kind of where they're coming from, what their past experiences are, trying to understand, you know, are they happy? Are they sad? Do they consider themselves to be anxious? Uh, and why is it that this person who's in front of me, who I'm assuming is a rational human being, is doing these things or saying these things? So do you. I mean, okay, I get that part, but does that mean that you actually interview these panhandlers that approach you? Mm, no, you, know, you the, the panhandler uh, point is... is um, is a great one because it comes up a, a lot in our everyday. And, you know, part of what I've had to learn of is to set firm yet thoughtful boundaries. And I'm really deliberate when I say this yet thoughtful uh, piece. Um, you know, part of that is learning how to how to say no. You know, the, the being very sensitive to these kind of empathetic experiences, you can imagine that you develop a lot of distress when you feel like you can't help somebody when you really want to help somebody. And I find that a key to that is really pushing kind of that empathic distress more towards kind of this compassion, kind of the desire to relieve the, the suffering of another human being. And I usually try to ask myself a couple of questions. Sometimes it's very fast and sometimes I'm more thoughtful about it. But it really is, you know, um, do I need to be more self-focused at the time or do I need to be focused on the other person at the time to to alleviate their suffering, and that might mean, you know, how much am I able to do or afford, you know, based off of my personal resources without causing myself or others real harm, or how much of an impact do I expect that my action or my kindness or behavior will have uh, toward a better outcome? Um, and I think the the other piece of this is something that comes up a lot in Buddhist teaching, actually, is being able to separate the intention and the action. You know, you can uh, you can empathize with someone's um, situation. You can be compassionate with them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to agree with them or do what they say. Um, you can still mean them well, um, but your action doesn't necessarily um, mean that you're 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 meaning them harm. You've studied synesthesia uh, in, in various categories, um, just not mere synesthesia as you experience it. Is that correct, Doctor? So I, uh, my research is around kind of social, epidemi- social epidemiology and brain health, but I'm really familiar with a lot of the research in synesthesia. It's something that you know, since I first learned about it, I've been um, not just reading the literature that's available, but also interviewing researchers and actually have been a, a participant in, in research myself. I've been studied by uh, V.S. Ramachandran out at UC San Diego, uh, Jamie Ward and uh, Michael Banasi out in the U- United Kingdom. Um, there's, you know, the first case of meritus synesthesia was uh, reported in 2005, and a lot has been learned in the last 10 years about it, uh, both kind of using psychological testing but also imaging testing. Um, so some of the testing that's, um, that's done to kind of identify whether someone has meritus synesthesia. So if you were to just do kind of like a survey of, the, um, of experiences, like do you um, – you have this experience where you reflect the, you know, the physical touch or the pain of another person. Um, about 10 out of 100 people will kind of endorse that, um, but that number goes down to two out of 100 when there's experimental testing that's done. And typically, there's this task that's called the visual tactile congruity task. But essentially, it's a masked uh, task where um, it's measuring the number of errors that you make in observing somebody else being touched while you are being physically touched. And what the task is looking at is essentially um, how vivid is this kind of internal sensation of, of touch that's mirrored to the point that it blurs your ability to distinguish actual physical touch and this internally generated sensation of, of touch. And in We've the got... image... Hmm? 
Go ahead, sir. I didn't and mean to cut say, you The off. imaging research that's been done, if you kind of take this category of people who are, you know, they call mirror-touch synesthetes, uh, and um, you put them in an fMRI um, scanner, what you find is that those areas um, that are uh, brain areas are tied to this, these mirroring systems that you kind of alluded to earlier. You know, sometimes they're described as the mirror neuron system or the mirroring system, but essentially we know that uh, just by watching somebody else kind of moving or being touched or in pain, um, our, all of us, our brain uh, will have activity that suggests that maybe we're kind of creating these 3D virtual reality type simulations about kind of what they're experiencing. And maybe that's kind of at the root of, of empathy and being able to think kind of through social interactions and to understand other people. Um, and these people with um, mirror touch anesthesia, you find that, that those brain areas tend to be larger and also more active. And what's even more interesting is that brain areas that uh, are typically involved in helping to tell the difference between your own physical body and the physical body of other people, well, those brain areas tend to be smaller and less active. So it's like this uh, boundary between the self and the other is, is blurred uh, reflexively by the brain. That's interesting. We have a break coming up. When we come back, I'm going to ask you about trauma-induced synthesisia. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Joel Salinas about his life, work, and book, Mirror Touch. This is a great read. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website at joelsalinasmd.com. One word, joelsalinasmd.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest discussing Mirror Touch on The Doctor's Show. So if you're not in the chat room already, now's the time to get on over there, and you can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Say hello to Ravinder when you're there. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dr. Joel Salinas about his life, work, and book, Mirror Touch. You can learn more about our guest and his work by visiting his website, Joel Salinas. That's J-O-E-L-S-A-L-I-N-A-S-M-D, as one word, dot com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. And as you know, it is a field of research that I have taken up recently. Okay, we just played some of Circle, performed by Alan Stone. So tell us, Doctor, why is this music important to you? And moreover, how does it inform us about who you are? Well, I really enjoyed um, the warm vocal piece. It was just very soothing. But I also enjoyed uh, the message that he provided I think he provides a little bit of context where he talks about kind of fear being very present. I think that's kind of very true of our current um, kind of social climate um, as part of, you know, being human. Um, but then I also like kind of this, uh, the idea of the circle that he kind of describes. And I, so the way that I interpret the circle is that it's kind of the circle of the self, essentially, um, and kind of the, the boundaries of the self. And you know, inside the circle, uh, you can't hide any colors. There's a lot. There's so much that goes underneath the surface, kind of in this very rich mental world that we have. And no matter what, it all goes back to this kind of kind of inner mental circle, which is, to me, you know, being a neurologist, it all goes back to the to the brain, kind of getting closer and closer to the core of of me-ness. I love that. Okay, before the break, we were talking. You were explaining to us and talking to us about some of the scan imaging that uh, uh, differentiates or identifies uh, the brain and those people that experience synesthesia from those people who who are not. So, I guess the point I'm getting to is, you have clear markers now. Uh, because this is a condition that has only recently actually been identified, that give us objective evidence of synesthesia, correct? That's correct. Yeah, the um, kind of the whole area of synesthesia, as you kind of had described earlier, is just this blending of the senses. And uh, synesthesia was first kind of discussed and described kind of, um, I mean, like hundreds of years ago, but it was um, we kind of stopped talking about it or even considering it uh, with the rise of behaviorism, where the the focus on research was you know if I if I can't see it then I don't want to really know about right. it um, and kind of in the 80s and 90s with. Uh, the development of new imaging tools that kind of came back up, and then researchers like Richard Seidewick and uh, B. S. Ramachandran and Ed Hubbard were able to uh, actually just uh, demonstrate that synesthesia uh, is actually this kind of quantifiable neurobiological kind of phenomenon that has a kind of a mechanism, or at least a proposed mechanism behind it. So, as an example, um, people who experience color with sounds. Um, when they when they hear a sound, um, you can see that on this fMRI scan that there's activity in the hearing areas of the brain, but you also see that there's uh, activity also in the vision parts of the brain, um, and kind of the these areas also seem to be more uh, densely connected together compared to those that don't have this experience of synesthesia. Right, now, I suggested before the break that I was going to ask you about trauma-induced synesthesia because we mm-hmm. had Jason Pageant on the show. And Jason, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's a Seattle man who came out of a bar, a karaoke bar one evening. A couple of guys jumped him. Um, when he came to, he's in the hospital after a couple of days in a coma. And now he's a mathematical genius. Everything he sees is geometry. It's, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's, it's a, a synesthesia form of sovereignty that has to. What, what is there that could produce synesthesia as a result of a, a blow to the brain? Well, it, uh, I think to understand that, it would be worth um, kind of discussing the proposed mechanism for why synesthesia exists in the first place. Um, so synesthesia, it's believed that actually it occurs in all of us when we're born uh, up until around age two. Um, and what the the idea is that um, as we age, our brain connections are constantly pruning and um to kind of enforce kind of uh, 
pathways of efficiency. So it's like getting rid of streets to make room for, for highways. Mm-hmm. And the thought is that people with synesthesia have some kind of a defect in this pruning mechanism, so they have a lot of these excess connections in their brain. Um, so you can um, kind of these very kind of connected sensory experiences. Another possibility is that uh, people who have synesthesia just happen to have uh, brain cells that are just very, very active to the point where they um, they make lots of new connections with cells around them. Um, so in the case of a trauma-induced synesthesia, one of the thoughts is that with the brain trauma, um, the brain, especially the area where there's injury to it, there's um, like the kind of the chemical kind of environment in this area changes so that way you have an increase um, in kind of inflammation and and blood flow, but also the actual brain cells uh, are more likely to create new connections. Um, And so the thought is that in this kind of state of um, heightened connectivity, uh, you might get some unusual new connections that you wouldn't have had before. And so one would imagine you develop this experience of, of synesthesia. You also um, see these synesthetic experiences in people who um, who use uh, drugs like um, like uh, LSD, um, and so LSD triggers a specific receptor in the brain. It's a serotonin type two A receptors in the brain, and people will report these kind of kind of hearing. Uh, uh, color and sound type of experiences. The only difference between kind of the drug-induced and kind of the kind of the brain-induced, so to speak, synesthesia, um, is is that the associations of those the connections are pretty consistent over time. While with LSD, those connections, those type of associations can vary from from experience to experience. Thank you. Let, let me ask you this: I see an animal uh, injured. Mm-hmm. Um, hit by a car or something of that nature. I feel it in my stomach. It's almost like I was on a roller coaster and, mm-hmm. you know, a sudden drop, okay? It, you must also feel animal's pain. Is that true or false? I would say that well, it's true. And, you know, I would I would qualify that by saying that, you know, the experience that I have is, is as close as I can get to kind of a replica of the experience of who, whoever, or even the animal that I'm seeing, um, but it's not the, it's not an exact replica because the only way that I could have that exact replica of the experience of the other is if I were, if I were them. Um, but what ends up happening is if you know if I'm seeing um, uh, an animal that's injured, my the visual information kind of comes through my brain, and my brain will kind of reflexively try and recreate that experience, and it just so happens that it does that kind of in a mirrored fashion. So, um, like, if even if I were, like if, let's say I were seeing somebody in front of me and they were touching the left side of their face, as I'm looking at them, I feel at the same time the sensation uh, of a finger moving on the right side of my face. Right. Um, so it's just kind of this recreation um, that's kind of ongoing all the time. Um and it just so happens that um, there are some experiences that are just much more vivid when they're new or very surprising, or there's uh, some past memories that I have that have a lot of um, kind of this fight or flight experience tied to them. So, for example, I was in a really devastating car accident um, uh, in 2009, and I was in a trauma ICU. But since then, whenever I see a patient who is um, kind of looks similar to me and is kind of in this ICU environment from from trauma, the physical sensation gets so vivid that it's hard for me to to suppress it. Sometimes it really kind of almost borders on on hallucination. That's when I really have to. Um, kind of shift my attention to kind of my own actual physical sensation. So like the sensation of my tongue in my mouth or my toes in my shoes, or even look away towards something that um, is less intense, like a sleeve or a collar that doesn't appear to have kind of uh, a facial expression or, or, or an emotion. The true experience of pinch yourself. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> I have to ask this because my wife will throw a brick at me if I don't. <laughs> If if you sense the pain of animals, are you vegetarian or vegan, or does that enter into your equation of things <laughs> in your life? You know, I've I've thought a lot about this. So um, I, I I do eat meat, um, but I, I I think part of it is that I'm not the one that is slaughtering the animal. Um, I think it'd be a lot harder for me to do that. 
um, if if I knew that I was the one that was slaughtering the animal. So I'm, I I feel so removed from it, and it's just it's so cultural um, to to me um, that that I do eat meat. I've, I have been considering switching to becoming a vegetarian for a while, as as my vegetarian friends can can vouch. Okay, I'm not trying to take you one way or another. I get enough pressure myself. So let's transition back to your patients. Have you ever freaked one out? I mean, you know, they've just gone, "Whoa, what? What is this? Some kind of a psychic?" Oh, well, I, you know, I've had some of those situations happen. Um, you know, I had um, I had this one patient who. He has developed a little bit of double vision, and so he comes into the hospital with a little bit of double vision, and we find out that he's kind of at the edge of what could be a really devastating stroke. Um, you know, he has kind of a, a, a tight, uh, kind of almost complete blockage of this really important artery that runs along the brainstem called the basilar artery. And what happens if you get a clot in that part of the of the of the brain? And then that brainstem, you develop what's called the locked-in syndrome, where you actually can only move your eyes up and down afterwards. And so we were able to kind of treat him and prevent that from happening, and he walked out of the hospital just fine. But when I saw him in follow-up in, in clinic, um, you know, I, as I was hearing kind of updates, he was telling me how he's dieting and he's exercising every day. All of his numbers are pristine. And as I'm congratulating him, he kind of gives off like this sense of joy. But as the joy is mirrored in my in my body, there's uh, it feels somewhat forced to me in, in kind of my own subjective way. It feels forced, and so I decide to kind of trust my my body and I press him on it, and he just starts to break down crying. And it turns out that he had been depressed and anxious, kind of tortured by the fear of having another stroke. And because I think of this heightened kind of uh, mirrored experience, I was able to have a more honest conversation with him and put together a plan, and eventually his quality of life improved. And that sort of thing doesn't really come from an MRI or a lab test or a standard physical exam. I think the mirror touch helped me in that in that situation. But I think I would I would highlight that it key to that was actually asking, kind of following up on the experience, getting a sense of the context of the situation, because I can have this very mechanical sensory experience in me, um, but unless I reflect on it, kind of draw my attention to it, and then you know, move away from the, the distress of it and actually um, you know, express the compassion and actually ask a question and try to, try to learn more about it, I, I wouldn't have been able to, to get at what was actually going on. Okay, have you, uh, I guess I have to ask this because you also, that's that's a pleasant experience. You're able to help uh, this patient and you're able to sense this and ask the questions. But there are going to be times when you're having a, you, you see a patient and the patient is in incredible pain and you feel that pain. True? Uh, yeah. So did you ever at any point in your career think I need to do something else besides be a doctor? Well, you know, early on in my, in my career, I mean, even like when I was beginning to see patients for the first time, I, you know, I was faced with that question that there was this intensity, but, um, you know, I think the, the first time that I really encountered that, uh, with, with such a high intensity was actually the first time that I saw somebody die. Um, and so that that um, essentially what happened is, you know, I'm at this medical student kind of just learning to kind of be in the hospital, and a code blue alarm goes off, meaning that somebody's in cardiac arrest. So right. myself and the supervising physician kind of run out because it happens that the that the that the patient is close by us, and I walk into this waiting room and it's kind of chaos, and I see kind of. Um, this man's wife in the corner just screaming in horror, and the man is in cardiac arrest on the floor, and he is receiving chest compressions, and he's having a breathing tube placed. And as I'm watching this, it is just so vivid, the feeling of compressions on my chest, as if someone was pushing on, on my physical chest, the sensation of linoleum on my back, as if I were on the floor, the sharp sensation of a breathing tube sliding down my throat. And as he's dying, it's kind of this loss of of typical kind of movements that I'm 
used to experiencing and seeing other people. The way I describe it, it's kind of like you're in um, in a room with an air conditioner that's running, and suddenly the air conditioner shuts off, and there's this almost very eerie silence. And at that point, I almost feel like I have to will myself to breathe, and I had to step away and went to a nearby bathroom and, and actually threw up. And I had to take the time to kind of ground myself back in my own physical body, like looking at my own reflection and really drawing my attention back to what was physical and real for me. Um, and and at that point, I knew that this was going to be a bit of a challenge, but, um, you know, I thought about the people that I could help. And, you know, it, it, it was scarier to me, um, scarier than the potential of being in those uncomfortable situations um, was the fear of not being able to help another person when they needed it most. And so that I kind of made this commitment to myself to try and expose myself to all those uncomfortable situations as much as I could so that way it would be less intense the next time that I that I see it and then I could maybe harness it to help others. I mean, I, I still consider myself one of the lucky people with meritus anesthesia because I, I was able to kind of harness this mirror touch to kind of help me professionally, but also I've been able to use it to kind of help me as a, as a person in terms of how to, I navigate kind of this very intense sensory world. But a lot of other mirror touch synesthetes um, haven't been able to strike that kind of a balance. You know, there's this one woman with mirror touch synesthesia who has essentially become a shut-in, avoiding people altogether. She can't even have a dining room table in her home because she can't stand the sight of seeing somebody else eat. And other meritutes in the seats, while they're not particularly housebound, they require long periods of isolation to offset these overwhelming synesthetic associations. Um, and so for me, it's, you know, I'm, I'm grateful that I've been able to get to where I have been, but it really has taken a lot of, a lot of kind of deep kind of personal work in terms of understanding how to navigate all the thoughts and feelings that kind of float through my mind and also kind of the, my own sensory environment. Seems to me it would take an awful lot of courage uh, to choose the profession that you have, given the circumstances and dedication to helping people. So, um, do you, um, you work with other uh, people who share this gift? You know, I um, I think that this meritus anesthesia is an experience that fits along a spectrum. Um, and I think a lot of people can relate, especially people who consider themselves very empathetic, uh, that, you know, they take on the negativity of other people or they, they can really feel kind of the, the sadness or anxiety in, in, in others. And so I've, I've had a lot of, uh, of, of persons reach out to me who had these very intense experiences and have had a chance to begin to kind of uh, speak with them um, and apply a lot of what I've learned in learning about behavioral neurology and neuropsychiatry in terms of how one is kind of able to shift their attention and, and regulate themselves. And it's, and it's similar to um, a lot of the, the mechanisms that people use to deal with depression, anxiety, and stress, and, and kind of these other kind of, uh, uh, kind of not just obsessive thoughts, but these involuntary kind of experiences that um, can be really distressing. How do other physicians, I mean, you, you work with other physicians, you've got to be a better doctor in many ways than your contemporaries. It's that simple. You're, you're going to be able to see, and I'm using that word in quotation marks, obviously, what they can't. Uh, how do they respond to you? Well, you know, uh, I was very... Um I was very quiet and unsure about talking about my synesthesia in general for a while. You know, if uh, it was kind of like a second coming out for me. Um, there were, you know, there there's certainly people who I knew would be open to talking about it, who had neuroscience backgrounds or that were good friends of mine and had a chance to get to know me before they could make a judgment about me, uh, you know, to put it crudely, think that I was crazy. Um, but, uh, you know, eventually there was enough research around synesthesia and specifically merit to synesthesia, and I had a chance to review a lot of this literature and felt that there was a lot of merit to the to the research that I felt comfortable enough kind of opening up about it and eventually sharing my, my story. You know, it's a story that I couldn't have shared without talking about synesthesia. And I've just been so pleasantly surprised um, how how open and interested a lot of the neurologists and psychiatrists that I that I work with um, have been, um, and, and um, you know they've had a chance to see me in a in a context without knowing about the synesthesia, so they know you know how um, how much I care about patients and how I'm able to kind of 
be the person who's calm in the face of of, of crisis. And so um, it hasn't really changed their their confidence in me at all. Uh, in fact, it's just given them an opportunity to to know a little bit more about you know who I am and, and you know all the things that make me me. I would expect them to be calling on you, not shaken by your. Your gift. That's what I, I, I do expect. tend to get really challenging cases. You know, sometimes I call myself a, a something's not right ologist. <laughs> <laughs> that's typically who I see. All right. We're out of time. The book is Mirror Touch by Dr. Joel Salinas. It's notes from a doctor who can feel your pain. It is an absolutely fantastic read. I suggest all of you out there go get this. Is there any other way that they can reach you, doctor, besides your website? I'm on all social media uh, under the handle Joel Salinas, MD. Um, and, um, yeah, and through the through my website, those are the main ways to reach me. Um, I'm, I'm I'm seeing patients at Massachusetts General Hospital, so if they call our department, they might be able to to schedule to see me. But otherwise, I encourage them to go to the website joelsalinasmd.com. Wonderful. I want to thank you for your work, sir, and for your willingness to share it with us so candidly and so openly. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. Do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay, until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.